Gen X Playback, episode number 15. And welcome to Gen X Playback. How often it is that we get a chance to talk about an actor that actually has his own song. So welcome to Gen X Playback, episode number 15. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we want to welcome you to our salute to one of the great entertainers, I think, of particularly the 80s and the 90s, uh, Eddie Murphy. And we're kind of excited to talk about Eddie just because... Uh, for me, in, in terms of uh, watching a show like Saturday Night Live, how much he represented or how important he was to that show for me as a young viewer. Um, but Eddie Murphy is, is somebody that is synonymous with movies and stand-up comedy in the 1980s. And I think this is going to be it's going to be a good uh, good episode for us to talk about. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, when you mentioned last week that you know we were going to talk about Eddie Murphy, you know, I kind of took a little bit of a different approach to preparing for this episode. And you know, instead of doing like you know some you know traditional research into things, I I, I kind of just went back and consumed Eddie Murphy material. It, you know, just like I would have back in the '80s and in the '90s, where. I watched some of his SNL skits, some of the famous skits that he had, and watched uh, some clips from movies and uh, listened to one of his comedy albums. And, uh, you know, it's kind of brought me back to what we kind of experienced back in the heyday of Eddie Murphy. Yeah, so we're not going to give a whole lot of background information on on Eddie. I think we want to focus just on, uh, you know, some of the works that he did in the uh, in, during the Gen X time. You know, he was born April 3rd, 1961 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, many fans, if you don't know, uh, you might be surprised, but his older brother, uh, Charlie Murphy, uh, ended up going on. It started out as one of Eddie's entourage. He was actually like the head of his security when Eddie became famous. Ended up becoming quite popular on the Dave Chappelle show. To me, one of my favorite parts of the Dave Chappelle show was watching Charlie Murphy tell his stories and then have them recreated by by Dave in particular I think my favorite one was the Prince I know everybody talks about Rick James but for me Prince was my my favorite Charlie Murphy story of all the time. Uh, the Charlie Murphy true Hollywood stories yes yeah so when I started consuming the Eddie Murphy material on YouTube I heard the the name Charlie Murphy come up you know Eddie's ta- telling stories about Charlie I'm like oh yeah that's right and so then uh, like last night, I went down a total Charlie Murphy rabbit hole, and I, I think I watched most everything that that was out there on YouTube. That you know, either Charlie was talking, or you know, because Charlie's passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, when did he pass away? It was like five years ago or so, something like that. Five or six years ago. Yeah, yeah. so it's been a little while, and, and and he was very well connected in the stand-up world, very respected. So the uh, in 1980. The original SNL cast moves on. They they shut down. Lauren Michaels, the executive producer, he goes on to movies. Um, so NBC decides they want to keep this going. So they, you know, assemble a new cast. Uh, the executive producer who took over was a woman by the name of Jean Dalmanian, who worked for Lauren Michaels, and that uh, you know she was it was kind of the heir apparent at the time she would be like the defensive coordinator offensive coordinator to the head coach and they just want to continue things on 
So they brought her in. Um, you know, when I read the book Live from New York uh, on the history of the show Saturday Night Live, uh, there's it's all on interviews. And there's so many people that want to take credit for discovering Eddie Murphy, uh, including Gene Dalmanian. But the fact of the matter is she didn't put him on as a cast member. He was like one of those bit part people that didn't really – uh, you know, have a whole lot to do when she was a part of the show. It wasn't until Dick Ebersole took over as the executive producer. Now, I don't know if it was him or maybe if somebody told him about about Eddie, but that was when he started to get being put on regularly. Well, kind of the legend that I heard um, was that, and you can go on YouTube and watch it. And you know, there was there was one show where they were they had four minutes to kill. Yes. That's true. Right, so they put they put Eddie out there, basically at the last minute, and said, "You need to kill some time. Go out and do a little bit of your stand up." He goes out there, and on a show where you are replacing legends, right? You know the John Belushi's, the 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 Dan Aykroyd's, the Jane Curtin's, the Gilda Radner's, uh, Bill Murray. These are superstars, and Chevy Chase before that, superstars now being replaced by people that aren't that funny. And so Eddie goes out there, he's got this four-minute bit, and he's really funny. And so suddenly he took that one little moment, and then they looked at him differently, and then it, they say as a result of that is when he gets added to the cast. Yeah, and it was based on that one performance that he kind of lit the screen up, and that's the one, for me, Eddie Murphy was why I started to watch Saturday Night Live when I was young. Now, did you watch it before? I mean, I did. I what, tried the, to, the original cast. I really didn't. I I was, when they left, I would have been eight or nine years old. I right. didn't get the jokes. I didn't get, uh, Saturday Night Live, the, the next cast that came on, that was when I started to follow the show, like understand what the humor was. So when, uh, when Eddie Murphy was out there, and I'll throw out also Joe Piscopo, sure. those are probably the two people that, stood out the most tim kazarinski didn't stand out to you? well i mean he had some he had some interesting characters i mean like, he actually had a little i married bit of, a chimp i remember that he had I a little a, bit of a career after that but most of the cast members they they may have stuck around a little bit in hollywood but it was widely stated throughout the years that it had it not been for the breakout sensation of eddie murphy that show was going to die that show would have been canceled absolutely and joe piscopo was he he had a career out of that. I mean, I, the the two of them together had a good chemistry. They did, and so for at least a number of years, it basically was the Eddie Murphy Joe Piscopo show. They were very heavy on the show at the time, yeah. And and the other the other characters were kind of mixed around. But it seemed like whenever the show would open, and reading that book live from New York, um, you know the way that the show is basically set up is your best material is coming in the first 30 minutes of the show that's 11 30 to 12 and then they usually have like the musical act sure. at 12 o'clock and then and then it's more the writers skits that are in the in the uh, last hour so you got to bring some heat to the first half hour of the show and piscopo and eddie murphy they were usually on within the first couple of minutes when when you and i would start to watch the show yeah and i i i credit eddie murphy for for really uh, turning me on to that format of Saturday Night Live because finally I'm 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 understanding the jokes I get the jokes and he's 
He's just so naturally funny. And well, I, you knew you knew Buckwheat, right? Mm-hmm. So he does Buckwheat. Absolutely. You know, he, he's got these famous characters, Mister Robinson, mm-hmm. which is a take on Mister Rogers. You know, growing up, you knew who Mister Rogers was, and you knew he was kind of spoofing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gumby. You know, we watched the claymation uh, cartoon Gumby when we were kids. But he wasn't just Gumby. <laughs> he was an old Jewish. He was this guy, old bitter, crotchety, cynic, with cigar cynical. smoking. Yeah, and and the way that they chose. Uh, and I wanted to throw two names out because the, his writing team that worked a lo- really a lot with him during his time on SNL and even wrote some scripts for some of the movies that he did, like Coming to America, sure. were uh, David Sheffield and Barry Blaustein. Those guys uh, worked with Eddie for decades. I, I think they even just recently helped write uh, the, the sequel to Coming to America that just came out last okay. year. Uh, so those guys were instrumental in really coming up with a lot of material and you got to have to credit uh, a guy like Eddie Murphy who was willing to dive into just about anything. I think one of the most famous SNL skits of all time was the assassination of Buckwheat. Oh, yeah. And, and just oh, to sure. give people a little background on that, uh, Buckwheat was a smash success for Eddie Murphy. It really was one of those characters that is an all-timer. It's an all-timer for SNL uh, skits. Uh one of the best, I put it in the top five easily of, of uh, SNL characters that have been done over the years. Well, Eddie got tired of doing it over and over and over again. And he got tired of people yelling at him, hey, do buckwheat as he's going down the street. So he kind of throws this idea out to David Sheffield and David and Barry. So the three of them come up with the storyline of where he gets assassinated. And um, I mean, it's just, it's great. Uh, Great television or great sarcasm, uh, uh, you know, for uh, for a skit where they had Piscopo. I think he was Ted Koppel. He was the the, the right the, the news guy. Sure. And, and the funny thing is, when they they would um, they announced the you know the the guy who shot him, and I think his name was John David Stubbs or something because they always had three names. Uh, you know, whoever was a killer always had you know, John Hinckley Jr. Mm-hmm. They sure. always had three names. And uh, when they interviewed, they, somehow they al- already had these interviews with these people in his like, hometown. Like Alfalfa was lined up as an interview, <laughs> I remember. And they're, they're like, well, did you think that John was ever going to kill? Oh, yeah, he talked about it all the time. Right. <laughs> Everybody that, they, oh, I mean, it's just, it was great. It was just a great bit. That I they, like the fact they, that Boat Week was a bit of a jerk. You know, he, he had let fame get to his head and he has his entourage. And uh, I, if I, I I did not see this one actually I kind of forgot about it and so I didn't watch it when I was reviewing things. Didn't his security? They kind of ran off. They ran away. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As the shots are fired, they put their hands up and they run away from Buckwheat. <laughs> okay. So, they, they, you know, have to understand that this was all done right around the time of the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Right. So that's kind of where this is coming from. It wasn't. It wasn't trying to be gory. Actually. Um, when they originally shot it from what I read in the book that they had to go back and reshoot it because they actually did put like blood capsules on on Eddie. Yeah. Eddie wanted that. He thought it'd be funny. And he said, it just looked too real. And they they didn't want to, you know, scare people or Mm -hmm. creep people out. So, uh, yeah, one of the best skits I think that was ever done in SNL. The other one that I really thought was fantastic was it was towards the end of his run on SNL when he was kind of, he was pretty much an established movie star at that point. We're talking like 83, 84. So he comes back and hosts the show and he comes up with this, uh, this filmed bit of where he becomes Mr. White. Sure. 
and it's him and he goes behind the scenes and he puts on white makeup and walks around New York City as a white man and and how life is so much different for white people as opposed to black people and it's it's really funny and his he's, uh, he's such a good you know uh, impressionist that you know the way he walks around and you know he's he's just got this uptight look about him and and uh it's just very funny again another another great uh great bit that he did for SNL sure and the, the one that i and i did watch that one uh the the one that i always come back to time and time again very short uh very but very sweet and that is James Brown's Celebrity Hot Tub yes when that when that one was shown live and i watched it i remember when, watching when it, it came on yeah i lost my mind it was so good it was so funny the you know the fact that for those of you who haven't seen it, you know, it's it's a spoof on you know James Brown, and so James Brown is you know singing about getting in the hot tub, and that's his whole intro. He's got his band there with him. He's going to make him wet, going to make him sweat, and you know he's taking off the robe just like James Brown used to, and you know Eddie's kind of showing off the singing chops, and then he puts his toe and he goes, "Wow, too hot in the hot tub." Yeah, yeah. so it's all about getting in the hot tub, and it's but it's mixed with James Brown and. James Brown, as a kid growing up in the 70s, I was always fascinated by James Brown because he always had that whole shtick going on with the cape and he'd always have his like his entourage kind of working with him, putting the cape on and he'd come back and, you know, he was somebody that didn't just stand up there and sing as we've talked about in other episodes. And I always liked that he had some flair. And once again, you know, talking about how you can come from different backgrounds and still admire the same thing. Right. So what Eddie shows in that little clip and, you know, all the flamboyant ways he's doing James Brown is what I liked about James Brown. Right. Yep. And he he just had uh, such an ability to, I mean, even though you knew it was Eddie Murphy performing, he did such a good job with characters. And, and he wasn't afraid to try just about anything, um, you know, any of the characters. He... What was the what was the uh, one he was like a militant Muslim type guy that mm-hmm. wore sunglasses and he's trying to speak very authoritatively and he messed up his lines right so he just stares at the camera because people kind of like giggle because he messed up his mm-hmm. line and he just looks at the camera and he goes shut up he goes yeah I messed up that's right. oh yeah I messed up and everybody just starts laughing which and which you know when you're in that environment live like that usually you don't acknowledge it right i mean for the most part i mean i don't know if i've ever seen uh, another actor on snl when they flub a line actually call it out which is what he did and it's 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 a way to take something that was a mistake and make it super memorable and velvet jones Jones? i want to be a hoe yep that Uh, was the whole shtick he always had a book that (laughs) he he wrote about that yeah so yeah uh, you know and you know it, it was um you know for me, you know, when I, you know, being a little bit older, you know, I did watch the original cast. And so at school, basically I had one friend, Greg, Greg Lapp, who had older siblings and was watching SNL when the original cast was on. So it was just me and Greg. But by the time Eddie Murphy comes on, it's kind of like your situation where now you're a little bit older Mm -hmm. and you now are watching it. Now, so come Monday morning, Greg and I were always going over the funny bits, especially when, when Eddie Murphy was was the star. We would discuss it, and we'd try to reenact mm-hmm. act the things. Is that something that you got you did with friends? Or? Well, I did it more with you. Okay. Uh, you know, so was, you didn't have friends who were watching not at really. that point? I, to me, I remember talking about SNL on the bus with you and Greg. Yeah. That's pretty much my memory of it, because you, you know, 
you know, Sean had said in a previous episode that we went to a very small, uh, very religious uh, Christian private school. And yeah, I mean, our, our friends didn't really catch on until to things like that until they were a little bit older. I didn't, I didn't, none of my friends at that point, cause I still would have been in about maybe sixth grade or so when, when I really started to get into the show. So that was, you know, you and Greg on the bus. That sure. was, that was about the only time when we really, I was really able to talk about. And we would go blow by blow sure. through the, through the various skits. And, you know, of course we weren't funny at all reciting the lines. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things where it's very common when you hear this funny bit to try to, to, you know, try, try to put it out there yourself. And it, it's, it, we probably were laughing so hard when we were telling the stories that we couldn't get through them. Right. So Eddie's career really takes off kind of like a meteor. I mean, it, it takes off like a rocket. He's not, not used a whole lot in 1980, 1981. You start to learn about him. 1982. He's really starting to take off. He gets this part in a movie um, called 48 hours. Uh, to star co-star alongside Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte was a very known actor. So this was, it was not a small budget movie. This was, this was a major movie release. Uh, Eddie plays Reggie Hammond, who is a con who's in jail. Nick Nolte's a cop, gets him out to help catch somebody who escaped. That was part of Reggie's uh, gang. And uh, it really made Eddie Murphy a superstar. At Which that is point. kind of amazing that, your first film, you're a co-headliner. Yes. With Nick Nolte and as Scott said in the 70s, Nick Nolte's a serious actor. I personally had never heard of Nick Nolte before I saw 48 Hours, but you know, as time has gone on, I've I've gone back and I've seen that, you know, he did appear in a lot of, you know, well-known films and was highly regarded, but for Eddie Murphy at what was he 21, 22 at this time? And he was 21, yeah, and when the his, movie came out. His very first role, he is a he is sharing the top bill. It's it's not like, you know, you talk about Dave Chappelle. I mean, Chappelle would have these little cameos from time to time in some movies. And that's right. typical, especially for a comedian who doesn't have much of an acting background. But, you know, Eddie is, he goes from what, uh, you know, two, three years prior to that, he's in high school. Yeah. And he lights up the screen. I mean, he's, I mean, he's great every, every bit Nick Nolte's equal. If not, I, I'm not a huge Nick Nolte fan. I watched that movie for for one person and one person only, and that was Eddie Murphy. Sure, and he did not uh, disappoint. That was that is one of my favorite movies of around that time when the movie came out, and it was very successful. Uh, it did just under eighty million dollars at the box office, which back then made it a top five film for that particular year, nineteen eighty two. So he got off with a you know he started off with a bang, and uh, you know if people didn't stay up late to watch him on TV. Uh, on Saturday Night Live, they certainly more people got to know about him through the movies. And it's certainly not um, like he brought a fan base with him to Forty Eight Hours. Right. It, it's not like he was the star of Saturday Night Live, and suddenly, you know, everyone's got to go see their favorite actor on television. No, this was this movie. Uh, I mean, he, you know, the studio got behind it. it. It's not from what I understand. It wasn't. It was intended to be a, a big release and. It was huge. It's not a movie that I saw in the theater. I was too young. But I remember by the time it hit, you know, we've talked about our local cable uh, outlet, Prism. By the time it hit Prism, I couldn't wait to see it. Yeah, and the nice thing about having a, a cable channel like Prism was you could watch it upwards of 20 times in a month because of all the different times that they would air it. 
So we would catch it three or four times. We'd watch it before the month ended. Yeah. We, I think we watched it three or four times uh, before it moved moved out of the uh, rotation. But Well, how else are you going to recite the lines? Cool. <laughs> I mean, it's like we didn't have the internet back then to, uh, you know, to see where things were written. You had to watch and maybe take some notes. But I thought it was important to note, when you look at the entire history of a show like SNL, uh, think about any other actor that was that's been a part of that show that has gone on to movies and and they certainly have but name another guy that was a co-star in a movie now john belushi was an animal house but that was very much an ensemble cast and he really wasn't a main he was one of a big cast of main characters yeah you have to think about some of the others Uh, bill murray didn't do meatballs until after he left the cast uh, Chevy Chase left the cast. Dan Aykroyd did the Blues Brothers after he and Belushi left the cast. So for somebody to actually take on something that big while you're still part of a show like SNL, I don't know of anybody else that has been able to accomplish that and pull it off successfully. And to me, the fact that he was so young plays into it, you know, quite a bit. And you know, I just to paraphrase, so you know, I'm not going to get the words exactly right, but I, I heard you know an interview with Eddie Murphy, and he kind of was talking about that. You know, basically, acting can be taught. Um, you know, there's there's other skills that can be taught, but more or less, charisma can't be taught. Mm-hmm. Either you have that it factor, or you don't. And Scott, and I think you were right when the first time you see him in 48 Hours, he just stands out. You know, his presence is just different, and it's he. He, he, and he's a good actor. So how many times would you see comedians that would get out there and they're not good actors? Yeah. You look at, uh, just to talk a little bit about the movie, he plays a guy who is in prison. He was arrested for being a criminal. Now, I think the one scene that shows how good he was is the scene where he shoots Billy Bear. It's okay. at, towards the end of the movie. And he... Uh, he strikes me as the kind of guy that ran with a really rough crowd. He was kind of the charming one. So I, I can't imagine he probably did a whole lot of heavy lifting as far as being a bad guy. Mm-hmm. That was up to Gans and Billy Bear. You know, they were they were the thugs. Of they were the, the killers. Right. Yeah. So for him to carry around a gun, he certainly looked comfortable carrying around a gun. But yet at scene where he opens up the door and Billy Bear is getting ready to stand up. He doesn't have the shirt on. He starts pulling out the knife. You kind of have you. I kind of had the feeling when I watched it. He's never shot anybody before. You know, he kind of had that real nervous part. That, you know, almost like in the movie um, Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, where the, that's the whole premise of the movie. Guys, you know, they talk tough, but when it comes down to it, who can really kill a person? Right. So you you can kind of see that him agonizing over that moment because it just looks like he's shooting somebody for the very first time. And I thought, you know, good job to him for pulling that off because, uh, as you said, one, he's extremely young, and two, he's known as a comedian, not necessarily an actor. And what you're going to see moving forward after 48 hours is kind of the, I don't want to say the Eddie Murphy, Murray, Murphy character, but the idea that you have somebody who is quick he has quick wits he's very quick witted he is quick with the one-liners and i think he's, he's that way in real life mm-hmm. so it helps he's, he's charming as you said but you know he also is um you know you know somebody that 
has, you know, like when we move forward and we start doing like, you know, Beverly Hills Cop, you know, he still has a little bit of an edge to him, you know, throughout the 80s, while he is, um, you know, this comedic actor, he also kind of plays some, has a little bit of an action hero uh, mm-hmm. edge to most of the characters, at least a lot of the characters. Well, he, he takes a little bit of a sidestep in his career, even though he's, he's still a part of, of Saturday Night Live. He just did a big movie, 48 Hours. Now he comes out and he actually, you, you can tell that he loves stand-up comedy. Now, he was a stand-up comedian as a teenager before he even got onto SNL in 1980. He was working as a teenager in clubs in the in and around the New York City area. He comes out like with 15, his, 14, 15 when he went to his first. He, he said that, you know, they'd had the, when the gong show was big back in the 70s, he went to an open audition gong show night and he won it. Okay. And, uh, you know, why, why did he win? Be, or why did he even enter? Because it was, there was a $25 prize and his brother Charlie told him, because you're really funny. Cause you should go down there do that Muhammad Ali impersonation that you did. Cause you'll win that money. Cause he, and then they won. <laughs> and when his mom found out that he was ditching school to, to do up comedy, she made him go to summer school. So he get his yeah. uh, high school, uh, diploma. But anyway, so he comes out on with this HBO special called delirious and delirious just, captivates people's uh minds he is now in terms of stand-up comedy his idol was richard pryor but he has now kind of pushed himself to the forefront of the young person's you know stand-up comedian of the 1980s in my opinion there were a lot of comedians that started out at the same time eddie did because when eddie was on uh, comedians and cars getting coffee with uh, jerry seinfeld they did some of the same clubs together in the 70s. Now, Jerry is you know, probably six or seven years older than Eddie, but uh, they, you know, he does remember Eddie as a young kid mm-hmm. coming around to these clubs. But Jerry and Jay Leno and Gary Shandling and a lot of these guys who were starting to, the up-and-comers, Billy Crystal, you know, these guys were a little bit more established to me, you know, Eddie Murphy doing the stand-up routine, Delirious, that's kind of what got me into stand-up comedy or, or made me appreciate stand-up comedy uh, was watching him do this do this HBO special. Again, because we didn't have HBO, we had to wait for to be able to watch it. I don't think I remember, I don't think I got a chance to watch it until almost a year later. I don't think we, we did. You had gotten the album. Right, on vinyl. Yes. Uh, so we heard, I heard it before I saw it. Yeah. Uh, and to hear it on the on the record is fantastic. To see it, you know, on video was even better. It, it, it was a bit of a shock in a way because you know prior to that, you know, we see Eddie Murphy and he's doing these, you know, kind of he's these family friendly kind of characters. I know it's SNL and it's late at night, but you know, for the most part, he's dealing with the buckwheat and he's doing, you know doing Gumby, and suddenly he comes out and he is the foulest, uh, almost shockingly. Uh, uh, dirty comic and it's kind of interesting and the reason i point that out is how he had these little things in his career that for other comedians or actors it could have really set them back and it did not you know he he if anything he got bigger from that i mean you know there was a lot of controversy because you know he made a lot of gay jokes on it and you know there was there was a lot of pushback even back then and he heard about it and you know evidently this 
bothered him because you know his comment was, "Hey, I'm I'm a comedian." It's kind of what Chappelle says today, you know, because with you know transgenders are you know aren't happy with Chappelle, and he's like, "I make fun of everybody," and that's kind of was Eddie's point. It, it, it's comedy, but even with that, it it did not hurt his career, um, yeah. and you know it, he uh, you know even he grew his fan base even more. Yeah, and I think probably what took him to the top or what took him to the next level was that you know as profane as he as he was in delirious he was still just as charming as he was you know doing the stuff on on SNL he just he had that charisma about him and delirious again you know he's telling stories about you know uh cookouts at home farting in the bathtub yeah. that kind of thing and uh, it was just even though he's he's cursing while he's telling the stories, it's still stories that I think a lot of people relate to. Yeah, you know, it's that was an album that the lines got recited all throughout high school, and you know, especially one of my friends, Ben Lustig, uh, he loved reciting lines from that album so much so that we went up to soccer camp and you know we. I remember Ben playing with the fire, and he was always doing the line from "That's a fire, that's, that's a, a fire, that's a fire." He'd, he'd blow it up, and he, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's using bug spray to light the fire, and it was always, you know, uh, Charlie, go, go, go roll the, you know, Eddie, go roll, roll Charlie out, uh, roll your brother out over there, and so you know, just continued and continued. It's, um, it because you know, we what we like to do here is we talk about pop culture, and I, you know. Scott and I didn't talk about this, but you know, I'm assuming that's one of the reasons why you included Eddie Murphy for a discussion. Is he was such a huge part of the pop culture? I mean, it, there there wouldn't have been too many Americans in the mid '80s, no matter how old you were, no matter what your race was, that you didn't know who Eddie Murphy was. Right. I mean, he was up there along the same lines in the United States as as Michael Jackson. I sure. Think. Oh yeah. Uh, so after he does Delirious, he comes out with the second movie. And the second movie does better than the first movie. He teams up with an SNL alum, Dan Aykroyd, and they come out with this movie called Trading Places, which is directed by John Lannis, who also did the Blues Brothers with Aykroyd and John Belushi. And, uh, you know, think, all right, well, you know, 48 Hours was successful. Trading Places was a bona fide hit. I mean, a major hit. I think it was number two or number three for the year in terms of box office. It did uh, $120 million, which was a huge number back then. Sure. And, uh, you know, so, again, he plays uh, uh, another kind of a charming con artist. But it, the it's a role reversal because it's the, uh, the social experiment with the uh, Duke brothers, mm -hmm. um, Randolph and Mortimer. And they decide to take a rich person and make them poor and take a poor person to make them rich and see what happens. And so it turns out that Dan Aykroyd, who was the rich guy, now becomes a, uh, basically a criminal. And the criminal, being uh, uh, Eddie Murphy, now becomes the rich person. And he's become now he becomes this responsible person saying, huh, this person needs to go to jail. Tell me. I know, what I'm, I know where I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So um, the movie is a major, major uh, success. And... So he's at this point he's still hanging in there with Saturday Night Live, although it's, it's starting to come to an end because you can't deny now that he is a major major box office superstar. Uh, he is, and you know, for me, you know, for my money, you know, Trading Places holds up even better than Forty Eight Hours. Forty Eight Hours, I, I I still like it, and it's been a long time since I've watched it. Mm -hmm. 
I see Trading Places, you know, frequently. Trading Places has a very timeless qual- quality about it. Shot in the beautiful city of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, PA. Yeah. And uh, there's some really, in, in addition to, uh, you know, the two main characters, um, you know, there's there's a great cast. That, Jamie Lee that, Curtis that helped uh, make appears this movie. and she does a good job. Yeah. And uh, I thought that it was just a well done, uh, well done movie. And, but again, he's he's a co-star in another major uh, major movie, which did extremely well at the box office. So at, at this point, he kind of stayed on for one more year. He, uh, 1983 was the end of his four-year contract with SNL. He agreed to stay on for one more year, although he wasn't required to be there live like the original cast or the, the cast itself was. That was when he started to do the filmed uh, bits like mm-hmm. the Mr. White. That came out after 1983 and 1984. So he's still a part of the the cast, but he does another movie. Well, sort of. Uh, This was a movie called Best Defense. It was actually starring Dudley Moore. Dudley Moore was, uh, you know, kind of, he was happening in the the early 80s. Yeah. Not, I wasn't, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast, I apologize. If you are a Dudley Moore fan, I am not. He was, I mean, he it's not that far removed from the movie 10 correct which and, and arthur those are the only two movies that i remember him in uh i mean that you know kind of late eight there was about late eight you know late 70s maybe early 80s I, you know i'm not sure on the dates but that's so i knew who dudley moore was right but you know he wasn't somebody that i was super interested in well the reason that they hired eddie murphy to do best defense he wasn't really a part of the movie but because the finished product tested so poorly in front of audiences, uh, they hired Eddie Murphy. I think they paid him like a million dollars to work for a couple of days. He said that he got paid more for doing Best Defense than he did for Trading Places in 48 Hours Combined. Which, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. And he's hardly in the movie. Yeah, He, he plays, I think, the, the whole his whole character's uh, scenes are shot inside of a tank. But he, he said he learned a lesson that he would never accept a role just based on a check again. Right. Because that was always one of his biggest regrets. Right. And for some people, that, that could have been a career ender. Yeah, he got, he, I wouldn't say he was lucky, but he, he in a way he was because, you know, he could have been that, that actor that got sabotaged. You know, he's got this nice trajectory and he kind of takes the cheap payday, or not the cheap payday, but the big payday and for an inferior product instead of you know, saying, I'm going to hold out for good roles, which, you know, in life, uh, you know, we learn our lessons. Mm-hmm. And that, to Eddie's credit, he really learned his lesson after that. You never saw him get this big payday with his, this Justice Cameo ever again. So six months later, he releases a movie in 1984 that was originally written for Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, I did Of know all that. people. Yeah, right. Uh, Stallone ended up, uh, saying thanks, but no thanks. I, I I don't I don't like the direction that you guys want to go with this movie. I'm going to make my own movie, which he ends up making, which is called Cobra, which comes out. It was at 85 or 86, yeah, something like that. Okay, I did see it. Yeah, we saw it. It's a good um, movie. So uh, you know, there were some other people that were considered for this role of Axel Foley, and the movie is Beverly Hills Cop, and it really not only brought Eddie back into the forefront as a box office star, but it solidified him as a one of those guys that 
if Eddie Murphy's in this movie, it's going to guarantee you so much, you know, a certain amount at the gate. And it's the first movie where he is the star, right? Right. So his first two, you know, he's you know he's got fairly well-known co-stars that have had you know much longer resumes than what he did. He, you go into Beverly Hills Cop, he is the star. Right. And unlike 48 Hours and Trading Places, where he starts on the other side of the law, this time he's a cop, but right. he's one of those- uh, Renegade you know, cops? Yeah, a little bit of a renegade cop. Uh, he works out of Detroit, ends up going to Beverly Hills. One of his childhood friends gets murdered, uh, so he goes to investigate. And it ended up at the time, and I thought this was an interesting note, This uh, when it was completed- it was the highest earning rated R movie of all time. Yeah, I heard that. Which, uh, which I thought was was very interesting. Uh, you know, Eddie uh, is brilliant in this movie as Axel Foley. Funny when he want, when he can be funny. He can he's serious when he needs to be serious, and he just he pushes all the right buttons. Again, it's a it's a good surrounding cast, but uh, you know the star is Eddie Murphy, and he shines just. I just watched this movie. It was just on TV a couple of weeks ago. I watched the whole thing. Yeah, I, I saw it the same night you probably watched yeah, it. it. You know, and, and what, what you mentioned there about an R-rated movie, that, that was a bigger thing at this time. You know, we, I'm not sure of my dates, but, you know, I, you know, I don't know if NC-17 really was a, a prevalent thing. Not, well, PG-13 had just become a or thing. PG-13, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. PG-13. So PG-13 was kind of that, that buffer. So prior to that... It used to be either your your R or your G, and you or uh, PG. I mean, right? R, so, PG, or G? Right. Oh, and, and right. And so the idea is you would really dramatically limit your audience if you got that R rating, if especially if you're on the borderline. Right. So this because you know you would you would cut a whole age group of teenagers probably that couldn't go see the movie uh, unless they were accompanied by an adult, which. I saw this one in the theater, so I'm not really sure how I got in because I would not have been old enough at that time to okay. see an R movie. I think I may have seen it with somebody's brother, you know, that took, went along and because and, you know if you went with someone that was fine, right? Um, but th so the fact that it was such a huge success and it was an R-rated movie on top of that, I think it speaks to it, right? And um so for the first time in his career, he, he takes a year off and then he goes through this run where he has stuff coming out every single year for pretty much the rest of the decade. But then in, uh, in 1986, he comes out with a movie called The Golden Child. Now, The Golden Child did extremely well at the box office. Yeah, I saw that one in the theater as yeah. well. Um, I saw every Eddie Murphy in the 80s in the theater when it came out. And this is this is definitely a step away from the characters that he had played in previous movies. This is a supernatural movie, yeah, where he is saving this, basically saving uh, this child who is, I guess, I, I I'm sorry if I get it wrong, but it's I guess more of a Buddhist type uh, uh, child, but it has supernatural abilities. He's trying to keep this child safe from this demon who he doesn't know is a demon until towards the end of the movie. And then he realized that, that all this stuff is real. Um, you know, he's still very much Eddie Murphy in this movie. He's probably uh, the one re the one and only reason why this movie, this, this to me is the movie that proves his box office ability because the movie itself isn't that great outside of him. You didn't think uh, Rat having the, the song uh, Body Talk 
Well, I like the, the song Body yeah. Talk. Yeah. Yeah, I like the and, song. And once again, you know, we, we've talked before about how MTV kind of came into play. Uh, MTV took the band Rat, a very popular band at the time, and the, to the song Body Talk and mixed a whole bunch of, well, MTV didn't do it, but, you know, the record company or the, the, the film uh, company mixed in clips from the movie with the song. So it was it was a movie that was promoted. I mean, I, right. I knew about it like we usually did, you know, a few weeks or so before the movie came out because I liked the song. I liked the band Rat. And I, I, you know, I was a huge Eddie Murphy fan. I was primed to go see this movie. Right. And uh, like I said, it does extremely well at the box office. Um, it kind of gets to a point that I'll make a little bit later about Eddie in terms of his roles that he's done and some of the criticism that has come towards him. But I think there's a, uh, I think he deserves a pat on the back for, for movies like The Golden Child. And I'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. 1987 is, a, is another huge year for him. He comes out with a sequel to Beverly Hills Cop, Beverly Hills Cop mm-hmm. 2, which actually does better yeah. than the first one. Uh, every bit as good um, as, as the first one. Rare for sequels to be at or near a first successful movie. Mm-hmm. And he pulls it off. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 does even better, takes some more revenue than the first one. And I, I would say the movie is every bit is just as good as, as number one. Yep. No, I, I remember liking it at the time, uh, you know, touching back on The Golden Child. I remember seeing that one in the theater. And when it was over, I said to, I was with my buddy Jeff Wanger, and we both were like, yeah, we felt a little disappointed after after that movie. But then we saw, he and I both eventually then saw Beverly Hills Cop 2. I remember we liked it. And mm-hmm. we're like, oh, yeah, you know, Eddie has kind of redeemed himself. Yep. Uh, the scene where he's going in with the, uh, the bag of um, vitamins. And he's talking about his twin daughters, Monique and Unique. I, I heard that was all, all improvised. All improv? All okay. improvised, uh, which just goes to show how naturally funny he is. Then he comes out with a concert movie of him doing stand-up called mm-hmm. Raw. Yeah. And if you thought Delirious was foul, yeah, I mean, Raw takes it to another level. It did. And this one actually rakes in $50 million, which a lot of it went into Eddie's pocket. Because he, it was a one-man show. There was nothing else. It was directed by Robert Townsend, mm-hmm. who um, you may remember him as one of the uh, backup singers in the movie Streets of Fire when they are lip-syncing to I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman. He also came out with a very funny movie in the late 80s called Hollywood Shuffle, mm-hmm. where he plays a guy who's trying to get acting jobs in, in L.A., in Hollywood. Uh, being a black guy and how hard it is and he's trying not to get typecast and some of the typecast things that he does they're hilarious but he directed this one and, and it's eddie at the felt forum in new york oh, city just one point robert yeah. townsend did you when you were doing research did you come across the fact that eddie and robert townsend were up for the original role in snl yes yeah I and mean, that's kind of a, you know i didn't I, I forgot that townsend was involved in the film uh raw and i did not know that it basically because they were looking for a black cast member correct I mean, the they, garrett morris they 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 had a part to fill and it was between robert townsend and eddie murphy and basically there was a almost a war between the casting who who was going to get the role because you know townsend probably was the better actor at the time townsend was a little bit older yeah and you know smoother very likable guy but he didn't have that, you know, comedic charisma. But and then the fact that they still kind of work together in the future is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he comes out comes out with this movie, and again, um, it, it it's criticized as much as it's liked. Yeah. 
because of the content. Oh, it's it was a little, little shocking. Yeah, and, and people were very surprised. But it to me, um, I again I credit the guy for sticking to his uh, guns as far as who he looked up to as a stand-up. Com- I mean, Richard Pryor was a take no prisoners type of stand-up comedian. We're I'm too young to remember Richard Pryor in his heyday. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. Just a little side note. I, I did make a note here. Trading places with Aykroyd and Murphy mm-hmm. was originally written for Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Could you ima- have imagined that movie with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder? Well, those two guys had the you know they were they were a pairing. They had done movies they, together. They yeah. had, and it was you know kind of a you know it's often you know where you'll get the kind of the buddy movies. You know, it will be the the Bob Hope and the Ben Crosby. They they'll recreate that and kind of have them in different movies. You know, it happens. And at that time, in the late seventies and early eighties, those two appeared in a few films together. Stir Crazy is the first one that pops into my yeah. head, but I know they did more than just that one. Yeah, you know, it I it probably been okay. I mean, it's hard to to imagine, you know, uh, anyone other any actors other than Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy doing those roles. I would be very surprised if you would watch it on cable TV today, because I. You know, while I watch Blazing Saddles, there's and, and maybe uh, Willy Wonka, there's not a lot of Gene Wilder that I'm really drawn to. You know, I, I can understand why you know people liked him, but in no way was he as funny as Dan Aykroyd, which I imagine that would have been the part that he would have played. And you know, the and even Richard Pryor, who was had a lot more street cred, probably as a comedian than what Eddie did, uh, because Eddie, while he does kind of grow up when he's younger in the city, he eventually then goes off to Long Island when his mom remarries. Mm-hmm. And he kind of has more of a, a suburban upbringing for, sure. you know, a little bit. Not, and he's not really as, you know, kind of as uh, street smart. It doesn't come across as what Pryor, but Pryor doesn't, to me, isn't nearly as charming as what Eddie is. And that's what he brought to the role. Right. And um, <clears throat> you had made an interesting point about Raw. This is a number of years ago. And we were talking about Raw and how, you had always been a bigger fan of Delirious than sure. you were of yeah. Raw. And you had made a comment and you said, in Delirious, he's happy. Yeah. In Raw, he seems angry. Yeah. Uh, do you still stand by that comment? Um, he just has an angrier tone to it, him. It's, you know, it, it, I, I do. You know, and just, you know, I didn't, I didn't watch all of Raw. I saw a couple clips of it. And I did, I did watch all of Delirious. And I would, I would stand by that where... Eddie in Delirious is like 22 years old, something like that. And he's kind of goofy and he's kind of laughing and he's up and coming. He's he's new to celebrity and it's it's all kind of exciting to him. By 87, he's starting to feel the pressure, I'm imagining, of the industry. And he's kind of, he's much more aggressive to, in his demeanor. Mm-hmm. You know, it, so yeah, he's got the kind of the, the famous red leather outfit on and delirious but you know that's just him kind of trying to look cool where the when he's in raw he's got this full-on leather darker leather and he's wearing the leather gloves and he's he he's you know what you mentioned rick james earlier it's kind of like he's like almost like a rick james type of guy <laughs> now he's got like an edge to him well he's talking you know one of the one of the bits that he does in raw is where he's talking about getting into a, a, a fight at a nightclub with this Italian guy. Yeah. And then he says all the brothers end up suing him in court. 
and they're like, you know, he's like, they're they're making up like, oh yeah, your honor, and he's like doing the, the whole, mm-hmm. the whole uh, bit, and I think that's that. You know, he is listed on many people's list as a uh, you know one of the greatest stand up comedians of all time, and it's his ability to get lost in characters that is his genius, and and for his acting career is, is at times his downfall because he's so willing to do different roles, which I I was going to talk about with the Golden Child. Um, there aren't too many actors, you know, I don't think Tom Hanks, if something was working for him, would go that uh, severely to a different direction to do a movie when you're at the height of your career, which Eddie seemed to be at the time when he did The Golden Child. Yet, um, in many ways, he was able to pull that off. Was it people's favorite movie? No, but just like SNL, how many skits did, you know, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray... You go down the list, how many skits did they put on that bombed? Sure. But, you know, instead of getting criticized for them, people remember the great ones. And I I think that experience on SNL gave Eddie the confidence to do some of that in his movies, where he felt like, yeah, hey, you know, I could I can try all these different characters, which when you go into the, start going into the 90s, he really does some pretty interesting characters in his in his career. So You've seen both Delirious and Raw. Would would you agree or disagree that it seems like he has more of an edge in Raw? He has. He seems very jaded. You know, yeah. he's, when he's talking about, um, you know, he was tr- having a hard time finding, you know, love, and he said, "I'm just going to go to Africa." You know, he's, I'm just going to go to Africa and find somebody that doesn't even speak English, and then of course, you know, she's going to turn on him too. So yeah, he has a very jaded uh, sense sense about. I mean, him he's still point. funny. Yeah, he's he's, he's it, it, it definitely makes you laugh, but it's a different. It's yeah. it's just that one is him talking about his childhood, right? You know, and really funny stories about Aunt Bunny and her mustache, and you know, and and you know, Uncle Gus and his you know, and the family cookouts. I mean, that's the material he's doing in Delirious, right? You know, but Raw is where he has he's he's been through the Hollywood life. Yeah, where where people are starting to come at him. Sure, that's I mean it's kind of the whole premise of the routine is is you know people he's he's not safe. Like people are starting to come after him because of a celebrity. In in a way, it's it's almost like an Andrew Dice Clay type of act. You know, because Dice would get up there and he'd have the leather and he'd have the edge to him, and he's you know was very Brooklyn. And I know Eddie originally grew up in Brooklyn, and it's you know it before he moves up to Long Island, but you know, it's, it, it, it just to me just has an edge to it where he was kind of this seemed to me kind of almost as the suburban kid when he's in delirious. Well, he's able to shift gears again in 1988 with coming out, uh, with my favorite Eddie Murphy movie of all time, which is coming to America. That's great. Yeah. And uh, I, how this guy's never won an Academy Award, uh, you know, if there if there ever was an Academy Award for being able to play multiple characters in a movie, uh, he's uh, coming to America. Just thinking about the movie puts a smile on my face. Did he do Harlem Nights before coming no, to America? No, came after. But come, it did come yeah, Harlem after? Nights came in '89. Okay, yeah, but he, uh, but coming to America, of course, he does with um, Arsenio Hall. And between the two of them, they did you know, what ten ten different characters yeah. in the movie. Oh, and, they, when and they did every the shop, yeah. everyone is funnier than the next. Yeah, and that's the thing is, it's you you could have hired actors to do some of the parts. Uh, you know, say say he decides because he's connected, right? Say you know he he hires Billy Crystal 
to play an old Jewish guy at a barbershop. Or he could put on some makeup himself and play an old Jewish guy at the barbershop. And absolutely pulls it off. You don't know until the very end yeah. when they're doing the credits that that was Eddie Murphy. And it, yeah, and, and like the, the accent, you know, the voice, the mannerisms are just spot on. I mean, one of my favorite scenes, actually, some of my favorite scenes in the entire movie are the barbershop. Yeah, those guys as the as the uh, as as the barbers, mm-hmm. the the two of them arguing back and forth, and he, you know he would yell and yell and also who's next, you know he'd be <laughs> like uh, you know. 1962 Memphis, Tennessee. I was walking down the street corner. A guy man come around, knocked me, hit my chest, knocked me on the ground. I look up. I go, Dr. King. And he goes, Oop, I thought you were somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the way that he told the stories and uh, made it so believable. But again, it just, it just puts, a, puts a smile on my face. Again, great cast. You know, John Amos plays uh, Cleo McDowell, mm-hmm. uh, McDowell's Restaurant on Queens Boulevard. And it's fairly similar to McDonald's. Yes. And he scared away a photographer that was uh, taking pictures for McDonald's. And then of course, Daryl, um, who's played by Eric LaSalle, who ends up going on to ER fame as Dr. Peter Benton. Um, but he's the, uh, he's the Prince of soul glow. Sure. And the soul glow, um, that was a ringtone of mine for, <laughs> for a while, but I, I just, I can't say enough about, about the movie itself and how much I still love it. To this day, my kids will tell you uh, it is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I remember at the same time, Arsenio was big. You know, he, he was just, he was a stand up comedian. I remember him as a stand up comedian. But didn't he have a show? It had just came yeah, on. It had just come on. Because I remember Eddie coming on the show mm-hmm. and they're, they're talking about the movie and Eddie was saying about how great it's going to be and, and how funny Arsenio is and that, you know, they had been buddies. Uh, doing the the the, uh, the comedy circuit uh, therefore you know as they were coming up and you know they always said when you know when one of us makes it we're gonna we're gonna do something together and mm-hmm. and i remember that i had some anticipation for this movie and it it does go down i think as one of the all-time movies it's it's got to be in anyone's top i don't know 20 list at least of all-time greatest 80s movies it has uh certainly benefited from the aid of continuous cable tv rotation even to this day you'll still catch it on it'll probably get run on a weekend 10 or 12 times a year on cable tv mm-hmm. might be on amc it might be you know any one of the channels you're going to come across this movie and it's still it has just such a timeless quality to it even though there's some things in there that are a little dated um, especially when they are dressing as Americans and they come out of the gift shop and they've got on all the buttons and the, mm-hmm. and the hats and things and um, which I thought was really funny. But there's so much of a, about it that is just timeless, and uh, it, it has a humor that anybody can relate to. So, it's, it's got a, a good a good story about a guy who's just trying to find being able to love somebody for for who he is and not for what he is. What where I what I think this movie demonstrates is just how likable Eddie Murphy was and still is because you know we talked about with Best Defense how that could sabotage your career. Well, you come out with a with a movie like Raw depending who you are, that may have that could potentially sabotage your career. But he comes out with with a movie uh, like Coming to America, where I think for me one of the reasons why it stands up so well is because much like how he is in some of his earlier roles, 
he just comes across as sweet and innocent. You know, the, uh, you know, the, the prince, the African prince, who's, who's kind of naive coming to America, and you totally buy it. it you, you, you don't believe that it's this jaded, uh, you know, person that's been on the scene for, you know, closing it on 10 years now, who has probably seen the dark side of Hollywood, where he still comes across as this very, very likable uh, actor where you're, you're rooting for him in the film. I think that for for Eddie's career, many people would say that this time, nineteen eighty eight, you would you would see as probably the pinnacle of of his uh, popularity. I think across the United States, maybe even internationally, uh, he got criticized for the next movie that came out in nineteen eighty nine, which you had mentioned as Harlem Nights. I I still know why that one gets ripped. I kind of like that movie. I like it. I like it the more I see it and. At the time when it came out, it was so different than anything else he did. And again, he he had a hand in writing the script. Right. He directed it. He starred in it. He wrote it. I mean, he was every part of this uh, movie that had a um, a superstar cast. You know, Richard Pryor was in it. Mm-hmm. Red Fox was in it. Yeah. Uh, you know, Arsenio makes a cameo. Um, what was the woman's name who was in the show? A Different World. She played the love interest. In that movie, uh, uh, Jasmine, Jasmine Guy. Guy. Jasmine Guy. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot put up at stake. She was, it, she was Whitley in a different world. It was a big. Yeah. It was a big budget. It made money. It made just under a hundred million dollars at the box office, but yet was considered a major disappointment for him. Um, Which you know, the fact that most movies lose money. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, I think you had said in another episode, what only like ten or twenty percent of all movies made ever make anything, and and he's still not losing money Mm-mm. for the studios. No. So you know, it it yes, it wasn't the huge blockbuster. You know, but if you want to have a long career, I think you need to do different things, and you need to branch out. I kind of liked it, as I said, it it was an old timey gangster movie that was kind of set from where your gangsters are black you know and it's set in harlem and they're running their own uh, you know candy shop mm-hmm. which in the back is the casino right it it um you know it once again like i said it it was different uh you know eddie's kind of playing the the, the cool gangster uh you know he, Eddie definitely likes having guns in the in the movies, and there's 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 the cool factor, and you know, of course, he's you know charming with the ladies. It's, but you know, for me, I still have never quite understood why this movie was so criticized when it was coming. I don't know what the critics were looking for, what other people were looking for. I remember like recommending this movie after I saw it. Right, and he he takes a similar tactic uh, as he did earlier in his career because. He got a little bit of pushback from The Golden Child, and then he comes out with Beverly Hills Cop 2, which Beverly Hills Cop at the time was his most successful movie. So after Harlem Nights comes out, and it's panned a little bit by the critics, then he comes out with another sequel, which is called Another 48 Hours, which was released in 1990. Very successful. Did better I, than I, the first one. I didn't one. care for that one that much, though. It wasn't my... I think, unfortunately... That movie was going along really well. Somebody should have rewrote the end of the movie. Yeah. Because it, it was it was going along great, and then it was such kind of like letting the air out of a balloon when it, you find out that Keyhole, who yeah. is um, you know, Jack's you know, buddy in the uh, precinct, is actually this you know, conglomerate figurehead that is the real bad guy. Right. 
Um, I didn't buy that part of it. I didn't, and it was very disappointing. And I don't know if I wished Eddie would have had a little bit more involvement at the end of the movie. My whole my whole argument about the movie itself was the end stunk. I I thought you know I just can't say it any other way, but I just did not like the end of the movie. And and here's something that's minor, but one of my big takeaways at the time was the fact that you know I I heard later on that Nick Nolte was trying to quit smoking. So, so in the first movie, he smokes. He's a chain smoker, right? Right. This is supposedly still this character, and in the movie, he's like never smoking. He's got the cigarettes in his mouth. They're always just hanging there. And it was just so obvious that it was like a prop that they still wanted him to have, and he he's never smoking or inhaling or, <laughs> but it was so obvious, right? Yeah, um, but it does well. You know, it takes in over 150 million dollars, so it's a very successful, a very successful movie. So it kind of puts him back, uh, it, you know, as a successful actor. And it takes a year off, and then in 1992, he comes out with two movies. One I really enjoyed really enjoyed this movie and it was actually just on the other night boomerang okay uh, i don't know if you had a chance to see ever see that one um i don't think i've ever watched it all the way through boomerang stars him and robin gibbons, robin gibbons. Yeah. it also has martin lawrence and david alan greer young who are his ha- two buddies a young Halle berry right and Halle berry's yeah. a very young Halle berry's yeah. in that who he ends up falling in love with at the end of the movie but it's it's again i credit the guy for doing something different in this movie he is kind of a ladies' man who falls for this beautiful woman, and she totally turns the roles on him. Where he's now the one that's waiting up late at night for her to show up, and gets upset, and she leaves money by the by the uh, side of the bed, and he, he's he kind of takes on the the female uh, the stereotypical female in the in the male female sure. relationship. And again, I credit him for doing that. And um, uh, this movie. It did well, um, but again, he kind of got criticized for it a little bit because it wasn't as successful as some of the other blockbusters that he had done earlier. I don't know at this point if if Eddie was concerned about getting a blockbuster movie. I I think he this was a project that and he was great in it. Uh, you know, one of my you know one of my favorite Eddie Murphy movies is particularly one of the best ones I thought he did in the 90s. Really? So that's, like I said, I, I've seen clips of it. I mean, you know, it's it's on TV sometimes, and I just never sat down and watched it from start to finish. So I'm aware of it. I'm aware of the premise. But for whatever reason, I think this was the first one in a string of Eddie Murphy movies I didn't see in the theater. I didn't, I didn't see uh, the next one in the theater, which was The Distinguished Gentleman. Yeah, I never saw that one. I only saw bits and pieces and of it. For whatever reason, that just didn't appeal to me. And, you know, people agreed. This movie made a profit. Uh, Is he a congressman in that movie? He's a congressman, yeah. Okay. It made $86 million. I, I, I really know nothing about it. Roughly half of what Boomerang brought in and a lot less uh, than another 48 hours. So at this point, there's some criticism that's starting to come his way. And I don't think it's merited. Uh, I think it was rather unfair. There was a very famous part in Saturday Night Live where David Spade mm, did yeah. this I remember on that. the weekend update. He plays. He, he kind of like pokes fun at celebrities. And uh, they showed a picture of Eddie Murphy on uh, on the screen, and David Mur- or, or uh, David Spade said something to the effect of, "Hey, uh, you know." Didn't you used to have a career kind of Wasn't thing? Wasn't it like, and I, and I did see this like recently, I think it was, hey, look, kids, a falling star. That's right, yeah. Well, Eddie Murphy was 
furious. So the little I saw like a little documentary on Eddie Murphy, and whether it's true or not, they portray him as being in bed with his wife, watching it at the time, and just being outraged. He was not a happy camper uh, to the point of where he refused to have anything to do with SNL until the 40th year reunion. And even then, he didn't participate in any of the skits. Now, um, because part of what he was really angry about, I mean, David Spade took, you know, he was a young comedian, took a shot at, a, at an established star. Big deal. But the fact is that Lauren Michaels, who is somebody that he had known and kind of worked with uh, off and on, because Michaels would, you know, go in and occasionally talk to the cast, even when he wasn't the executive producer. But just the fact that Lauren Michaels allowed that joke to air when uh, uh, Eddie Murphy had been so important, instrumental in keeping the show on TV back when it was in its fallen years, he was he, he was the one guy keeping the lights on, and mm-hmm. he felt very betrayed by, by that particular joke. And perception can be reality. So if you have somebody on a national platform, like David Spade was, saying that you know basically this guy's career is dying, but suddenly... Whether you were thinking about it before, now you're thinking, yeah, is Eddie's career dying? And and now you're kind of tainted. Yeah, so um, Eddie comes back in 1994, again, with another sequel. And this is the first time that he's done a, a third installment of a movie. Came out with Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, now, not a good decision. Now, after I read um, you know, some of the background and the history on this movie, Eddie wasn't very happy with the movie in in the finished product he felt that the the story went in in wrong directions mm-hmm. it was directed by john landis who he had worked with on trading places coming to america so you know he brought somebody in that he really respected but yeah this this one wasn't nearly as good as the first two right and i thought uh even though it it made money it made over 100 million dollars it certainly didn't it wasn't didn't have near the impact that the first two movies, or really just about any movie he made in the '80s, did uh, compared to this one. And, you know, and that's you know one of those things where it it's rare where you have a sequel that is better or bigger than the first. You know, and Barry Lewis Cop was one of those exceptions. It's not unusual for um, you know the uh, the studios to uh, you know go too far. And come out with with another one when they probably should have stopped. When, you know, there's many people that would say the same thing is true with the Godfather. They should have stopped after two, right? And, you know, great. Well, there's no way that I'm ever going to compare Beverly Hills Cop to to the work of the Godfather. You know, the fact is, I think they overstepped um, the franchise. It, you you sure. took what, what could have you could have left say, wow, wasn't that great? Those those two Beverly Hills Cop movies are this great set, and you you know would have been revered over the years. And now it's it's rare that you're going to hear someone that talks about it says, yeah, I kind of wish, you know, they hadn't done it. Well, you know, Rocky did it. He did, and it worked. Rocky Five, hey, Yeah. Um, you know, Rocky Five by many people, was like, you know, why didn't you stop? I probably was among them. But where I liked Rocky Four, you know, it was in my top ten soundtracks. I thought Rocky Four was great. Rocky Five, I wasn't a fan of. And then he comes out, you know, what was it, 16 years later with Rocky Balboa, yeah. which it was one, you know, arguably my favorite rocky movie of all time well sometimes and i i I, it's been so long since i've seen beverly cop three so i don't really even remember how it ended this is an amusement park or something yes it was a disney world type yeah uh, 
amusement park. Yeah, well, and, and you know, it was kind of it wasn't even Beverly Hills. So you know, it's um, you know where just like with you know Rocky Five, they you know it doesn't end the way you know Stallone initially wanted it to end. He actually wanted Rocky to die in the street and the fight. That would have been a different movie, um, and you know, probably would have been a bigger impact. But like like with Eddie, it just kind of it strayed too far from the original formula. Yeah, it just seemed like they were uh, trying to reach for something. Yeah. Instead of instead of having it just organically be funny, it's like they were trying trying for the gags. You know, they they brought in uh, poor Hector Elizondo to uh, at the time. If you needed a, a movie to have like that respectable guy, he yeah. was always that respectable guy in every movie. You know, they tried, but unfortunately, um, that was missing. The script was just missing stuff, and. Um, I don't think it, I don't think the finished product was what it should have been. But. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, 1995, Eddie comes out with a uh, actually a horror movie, Vampire in Brooklyn, with Angela Bassett, co-written with his two brothers. Right. Yeah, and it made money, not much, but it only did 35 million dollars at the box office. But this is where it comes back to. I think you have to look at his SNL roots and all the characters that he did, because he wasn't afraid to step outside of the box and try something new. And now granted he did do three Beverly Hills cops, but then he comes back with something completely different where now, now he plays a vampire. Yeah. I, I, you know, again, it takes, it takes a lot of guts to be able to have that type of range of characters that you're trying to do. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's worth a try. I mean, I, I, it, if you're an actor or anything in life, if you try to go too safe, you know, it's all right, you can survive, but you're never going to achieve greatness. You know, we talked about how in Pulp Fiction, you know, how, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it was a step out for some of those characters to kind of, you know, um, you know, change the, the type of roles that they might have had and risk, you know, it all in this very bizarre movie. The same thing, you know, and it turned out to be very successful. So everyone praises John Travolta and Bruce Willis for what they did. But it could have gone the other way. Sure. And you could have easily flaw. say it destroyed their career. John yeah. John Travolta, had he only just stayed to the, the formula that he used before, he would have been fine. No, he took a chance and it worked out. Yeah. That's what Eddie Murphy was doing here. So I think a lot of a lot of critics at this point in his career probably ha- have written him off. And I remember when he comes out with the next movie in 1996, how shocked everybody was with how good it was and how popular it was and how funny he was in it. And that was The Nutty Professor, yeah. which was a remake of a Jerry Lewis movie from, from the 1950s, uh, where he plays this professor who you know can transform himself by taking this uh, concoction that well, he's he, overweight. That, he's like yes. he's like four hundred pounds. I think it's Sherman Sherman Clump. I think was yeah. his name. And he develops this formula that when he drinks it, you know, he, he becomes really slimmed down. And it's hey, it's Eddie Murphy. You know, he kind of appears as what is it, Buddy Love or something like yes, that. Yes, Buddy Love. Yeah, but him as Sherman, he is such a likable guy. Yeah, you could have made. He could have done an entire character. Sherman could have done a whole movie, and just how lovable he was. And what he ends up doing that later. Well, uh, in the 2000s, when he comes out with the Nutty Professor too, mm-hmm. which is focused more on his on on the Clumps family, which is him as just playing different characters. just playing different characters. And I, I I don't remember the name of the makeup artist, but the the same makeup artist that he used on Coming to America 
was now who he then took with him these many years later when he's doing The Nutty Professor. And that he actually, you know, would sit for hours in the chair, you know, in the fat suit that he, that he would wear, and the, you know, the, which made it so realistic that as a result, he said that they could do close-ups. They, you know, that they did such a good job of matching up his face with, with the costume that it wasn't a problem to zoom in with the camera. I remember watching watching the movie, and I remember thinking, you, you step outside of, all right, this is the same guy, but I remember not liking Buddy. Like, yeah. again, he's really a, kind of a jerk. Sure. Yeah, he's a jerk character. Yeah. And liking Sherman. Yeah, I thought the same. And you were really rooting for Sherman <laughs> to, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith played the love interest in the movie, but... You know, you're really hoping that Sherman would get the girl at the sure. end of the movie. Yeah. And one of the best is at the very end where they're dancing and he kind of spins her into him and she like literally pings off him like a pinball. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was so believable as a heavy guy. And um, yeah, it just kind of stood out to me that I, I found myself and I remember thinking to myself, you know, Scott, it, it is the same you know it's the same guy he's oh, just I doing two, buddy. Different, two different characters because buddy was despicable yeah and you're like man you're like when sherman finally gets it's like oh yeah you know way to go sherman um but yeah i just thought that was just just show how good he is at kind of disappearing into these characters and you know what i think this movie is important because not only is it a bit of a comeback for him but it's really the first time where he kind of embraces a family-friendly character. You know, he, he is not the foul-mouthed cop of Axel Foley. He, you know, he's, he's, he's not trying to play the, the really cool gangster, you know, like I talked about in Harlem Nights. He is, he's, this is a movie, Nutty Professor, that you could take uh, your eight-year-old child to. Okay. Um, he, has a, he has a setback in 1997. He comes out with a, with a movie called Metro. And I think he probably did this movie because the Axel Foley road kind of dried up on him. So he plays another cop, uh, a negotiator in this movie. I never actually saw the movie because it really wasn't out for long no. at all. And this was the first movie that he lost money on. Uh, it made only $32 million at the box office. It lost 23. So this was, this was a big hit uh, as far as a hit to the budget of it not making money. And I just don't ever remember, this is a movie that's really hard to find today. I, I wasn't able to really come across much about it. It's, you know, it's, it's on demand right now. Because I, 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 I debated watching it here the other night because I saw it was there. And I, I didn't even remember that the movie was out there. Okay. And I, I totally forgot about it. Now, one of the things I did, you know, preparing for the podcast was, if you go on YouTube... There's a, a, a two-hour montage of someone has taken every uh, Eddie Murphy appearance on David Letterman uh, up through like the you know, 2011, from his first appearance up through 2011. And one of the times he appears was when he was promoting Metro. Okay. And I, it was like, that is, I kind of now know the premise of the movie because they talked about it in, in that bit, but... It was something that when when I saw that I was like, yeah, I do remember them hyping it for a little bit. But as you said, it was gone. Yeah, it was gone before. It was rare for for me at the time. Uh, you know, being married, having small children, it was it was hard to see a movie on its opening weekend. So usually, if we wanted to go see something in the theaters, 
it, it was usually a few weeks because of the crowds and uh, you know it was a little bit of a hassle to try and get out and watch these movies when they first came out. So usually if we saw something in the theater, it, w- it had been in, because we kind of waited for, we wanted to get the buzz on it and see, okay, you want to hear if it's good. Sure. Because you, you don't want to waste your money. Well, we had talked about way back when that we kind of relied on Cisco and Ebert for things. Right. You know, you, you, the, it, even now it's more expensive to go to a movie. But back then, you know, it, it wasn't cheap to, to go out, especially, you know, if uh, you were taking more than just yourself and you're doing dinner and it's... It, you know, you wanted this to be worthwhile because you could easily rent movies. So mm-hmm. why go to the extra expense? So when you, you got a little bit of uh, feedback from the critics and you hear that this is a bit of a dud, uh, I know it's something that I just didn't even consider. This movie was out of sight, out of mind before we really had a chance to s- consider going to it. So it, it just kind of disappeared. Uh, 1998, he has... Two very successful. Now you're starting to see him go into a little bit more of the family role. Yeah. Where he does Mulan, uh, which is a Disney never animation. I uh, never saw it either. Uh, but he played the, uh, the the voice of Mushu. Yeah. And a Disney animated movie in the 1990s. I mean, forget about it. It's going to do well. And it did over $300 million. So you could consider that a, you know, a, a big success. I kind of surprised. I do remember that he was in that movie, but when you're thinking animated features and Eddie Murphy, you always think of Donkey and Shrek. Sure. That's that. I mean, that's really what uh, you know in my mind that I think of, which came out in 2001. But uh, you know, he actually did a voiceover in another movie previously mm-hmm. before Shrek came out. So I thought that was interesting, and then. He had a hugely successful movie with Dr. Doolittle, sure, yeah. which uh, was very much a kid-family-friendly movie. Not my kid's favorite, but we enjoyed it, and we watched it when it came out. I think we watched it when it went, first came out on videotape. Okay. Um, so I believe we still might have it somewhere in our, in our little library, but um, you know, the, kids, the kids enjoyed it. It was a fun movie um, where, where Eddie plays a guy who can communicate with... Um, you know, with animals. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, it was a fun movie for the kids. They enjoyed it. He also had another movie that came out called Holy Man, which really, this was his biggest disappointment. I, was I, I, I remember it, did not see it, had no interest in seeing it. I so forgot about this movie. I had to actually read the, the, the write-up on what it was about because it, the, the premise of the movie is these uh, two people own this, TV channel, and they are selling products. It's kind of like a home shopping network. So you're telling me something I know nothing about this. And they come across this guy that uh, played by Eddie Murphy. That when he uh, they find him and he's so happy and charismatic that they bring him into the TV station. Somehow he makes his way on the air, and they start selling more stuff. So that's the whole premise of the movie. Is he goes on to and. Um, can't tell you a whole much, a lot more about that, unfortunately, but I can tell you that it uh, <clears throat> that it lost forty eight million dollars against okay. its budget. It only yeah. did twelve million dollars at the box office, and uh, did not do well for him at all. So, holy man, uh, two big movies in ninety eight and one and one flop. So, uh, when did Daddy Daycare come out? That came out in the two thousands. Okay, yeah. Okay. So the last the last two movies that he did in the nineties were Life and Bowfinger. Uh, Life, he did with Martin Lawrence. 
Okay. Did you ever see it? Nope. I I real I enjoy this movie. I recommend that you watch this one because he they play uh, two guys from the north that are driving through the south. They somehow get mistakenly arrested and get for for murder. Oh yes, I've seen part of that. Yes, and yes. Then, and yes. then they on end TV, up getting I've seen part of this. They end up getting yes, sentenced to absolutely. life. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's good. And the movie is about them trying to escape for like fifty years. Yeah. No, I. I, I don't know that I've ever watched it continually from start to finish, but I've, I've, I've watched it enough when it's come on. I've seen the end of it. I usually watch, you know, come in like partway through. So one of these days I need to see the actual beginning of the movie, but no, that, I sure. I know that movie. That's a, you know, to me, that's, that's a good movie. It's not, it's Eddie getting into a character where uh, for some reason he seems to get criticized when he's not donkey. You know what I mean? Where he's that kind of, upbeat happy go lucky great personality but he plays this he plays this really and as the movie goes on he gets more and more bitter and uh martin lawrence's character i mean they're best friends but they they're not even speaking to each other at the end right i remember that and then they finally kind of have this little little come together moment um but it's uh you know to me i I think it's one of his better acting jobs uh, that that he's done and I wish that the movie would have would have done a little bit better at the box office. I enjoyed it. I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it afterwards and liked it. Did, did it make money? It lost uh, just under seven million dollars. Well, it did seventy three. They probably made that back up since then with as many times as it's been on TV. And then he did a movie called Bowfinger with Steve Martin, and this this was considered a success. Um, have you ever seen Bowfinger? Nope. nope. Again, I, I, I really recommend it because right. he plays the nerdiest guy you've just about ever met in a movie. I, I So, you know, I said I was scrolling through on demand to see Eddie Murphy movies. And that one came up and I, I am visualizing the, you know, kind of the movie poster that right. they were showing that it would have been. Out. Yeah. And he's, he's looking like a total dork. Well, the, the premise of the movie is Steve Martin is this movie producer who finally scrounges up just enough money. To he wants to make he always wanted to make his own movie. I forget what the movie's called. It's something something stupid. Um, and he he hires all these people on like a two thousand dollar budget. And he he wanted to hire like one of the most popular actors, who's Eddie Murphy, as this movie star. Well, he turns it down. So uh, Steve Martin's Bowfinger, who's Steve Martin, he gets the idea of having these actors like interact with this guy and they're in character. He has no idea what they're talking about, but yet he's filming okay. the reactions. That's the movie. Okay? All right. And um, Eddie Murphy plays Jiffy, who's this guy's twin brother. And he's this goofy, nerdy guy. So Bowfinger hires Jiffy to have scenes in the movie. Like, you know, just as kind of like a stand in mm-hmm. to this, to this other famous guy. Um, but he's as Jiffy, he's great. He's so okay. funny. I, I just I recommend the movie just based on his character and how goofy uh, he is in in that. But Bowfinger uh, did well. It made just under hundred million dollars. But again, it shows the range and his his daring, you know, daringness to venture out and do different things. I, I again, I, I can't help but think back to Saturday Night Live and his uh, experimentation with many different types of characters right yeah all right that's good no that's um you know i said i was aware of it i I remember seeing it or you know you know 
clips, commercials for it, but I just totally forgot about it. But yeah, I'll add that to my list. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go watch that one. All right. So I had three questions at the very end. Sure. Um, I figured I'd just come out and uh, ask them to you. So question number one was, what is Eddie's legacy? What do you think is Eddie Murphy's legacy? Especially to Gen Xers, like so, speaking specifically to Gen Xers. Well, you know, it, it's so here on this podcast, we're focusing on the 70s, 80s, and 90s, right? And so Donkey, you know, from Shrek is a little bit afterwards. So, you know, that's the early 2000s. Uh, you know, so you can't really count that in, although it's, you know, kind of difficult not to have that because it's, it's you know, such a, a vital part of, of who he is. But, you know, that apart to Gen Xers, you know, he was he was a superstar. You know, it, it you look back in the in the eighties and as far as movie, uh, you know, there wasn't a bigger movie star, I don't think, in the eighties than Eddie Murphy. There wasn't someone that was instant box office. I mean, there there's a reason why um, you know, he gets hired for a cameo at a huge fee, because they know if they slap his name on, on the poster that there, some people are gonna go out and, and see the movies. You know, I mentioned that when I was old enough to go to the movies, so I didn't see 48 Hours in the theater, uh, I didn't see Best Defense, and I didn't see Trading Places in the theater. After, after Trading Places, I saw every 1980s Eddie Murphy movie in the theater. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was just, it was just a natural because he was such a big star. If he came out with anything and it looked remotely appealing to us we were going to go see it yeah how many how many actors can you think of and say if this guy is in a movie i'm going to see it right away right Uh, you know there's a small handful that that come to mind for some people i know they they say that with tom cruise they say that with tom hanks sure they say that with maybe harrison ford uh eddie murphy certainly was in that discussion in the 80s for sure Mm -hmm. yeah it, was there any bigger actor in 1985 than Eddie Murphy? No. And, uh, you know, I talked about how I watched these clips when he was on Letterman. So one of the times he's on Letterman, what he's promoting is the fact he's going to be hosting the MTV Music Awards. Which was the first? The second. Was it number two? Oh, he, that's right. Yeah. Aykroyd and Bette Midler. Yeah, Aykroyd and Bette Midler were the first. So okay. he's, doing, he's doing the second. And, you know, he's kind of running off the list of all the performers that are going to be there. And it's the who's who of the, of the mid-1980s. He is every bit as much a star f- as these, you know, as these rock stars are. In in a lot of ways, he was a rock star, is the uh, as an actor. But it wasn't just the actors. So I don't know too many people that were successful in television, as many people that were successful actors, and then are as regarded as arguably the greatest stand-up comedian of a generation. For someone that hasn't done stand-up, I don't think since 1987. Right. I don't think he's been on the road. You know, I actually heard on a, a Joe Rogan podcast where he's talking to Dave Chappelle. Because, you know, both those guys are, are stand-ups. And they, you know, that stand-up's a grind. And that, you know, basically it's not something, as Chappelle said, it's not like riding a bike. You basically have to build up your muscles. And you have to be able to go to the club and work on it and take this thing on the road and work on your material. And then he goes, well, except for maybe Eddie. He goes, Eddie, Eddie probably is the one guy that just, can just roll out of the house and go out and just have some material and just go and be funny at the club. Yeah, uh, and all he's doing is pretty much repeating stories. Yeah. Which one of the best storytellers, because we come from a family that likes the story. You know, you know, we like to tell stories, um, if you couldn't tell. Yeah. And um, 
you know, so we can always appreciate a good storyteller, and Eddie Murphy does it better than anybody. Uh, question number two: What was your favorite Eddie Murphy character of the you know the eighties or nineties? Do you have a favorite character that stands out to you? It could be SNL, it could be TV uh, or movies. Well, as you know, I'm going to me his characters tended to be more SNL. Uh, so on SNL, uh, I really like Gumby. As as you know, I had a Gumby shirt that I believe you got for me for Christmas the That's one right. year because I was all about Gumby. Uh, I, I thought Gumby was hilarious as a character. My my, you know, coming to America. Uh, to me, it's I don't know about characters because you know Eddie plays so many characters in the movie. That's probably my favorite Eddie Murphy movie. Okay, that uh, of anything that he's ever done. I I th- I think. I thought Trading Places was great. And it's still a movie that I really still like to go back and watch from time to time again. And, uh, you know, I, I when I saw Beverly Hills Cop the same night you did, unbeknownst to me, you were watching it when probably when I was watching it. I, I It's been a while. And I remember thinking, this, is, this still holds up. This is still really good. So Axel Foley was a great character. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for me, it's SNL and Gumby. Okay. I, um, I think... The best, I think the best Eddie Murphy character was Axel Foley. Okay. My favorite was only in the movie for a couple of minutes. Um, But you might remember him as Joe the Policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama. (laughs) I want you to put your hands together for Jackson Heights' own Mr. Randy Watson. Do you have the music coming up now? Were you? It, I couldn't find oh, it. I was going to find that on Spotify. I have a Randy Watson t-shirt. <laughs> it says Randy Watson World Tour 1988. Really? Oh, I, I haven't do. seen that one. I do. Um, just, oh, yeah. No, Randy Watson was great. Randy Watson was, uh, you know, put your hands together. Uh, and since you're in such a clapping mood, <laughs> you're such a beautiful audience. Put your hands together for my, for my band, Sexual Chocolate. I mean... Uh, it, and he sings what the uh, the Whitney Houston song? Uh-huh. I believe the children are yeah. the future. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, no, no. That's that's <laughs> that, you know what, what, what a great movie. And like I said, there's so many characters in that movie that he was playing. Um, yeah, I mean you you could you could pick almost any of them. But yeah, no, that's a good choice. So um, I, I yeah, I, just so many characters. It's it's great when you have so many to choose from. Sure. Uh, question number three, why do you think Eddie was criticized in the nineties? I think it's natural to criticize anyone that becomes that popular. You know, when, whenever you get to the top, there's always a group waiting for you to fall. It seems like there's a common theme with that. Yeah. And he was, he was the biggest of stars. I I don't know that you could have had a, a bigger star and, you know, to his credit, he had some very good financial people around him. Because you always hear about the people that get into financial trouble. You know, Red Fox got into financial mm-hmm. trouble. I, you know, I think Richard Pryor's in financial trouble. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, of actors that, uh, you know, have issues. But, you know, I hear, once again, in that same Dave Chappelle interview with Joe Rogan, and he said, he goes, Eddie got paid. You know, Eddie still has all his money. And, mm-hmm. you know, Eddie, Eddie did really well, which is interesting because when he would appear on Letterman, he kind of had this little bit of his entourage. And he would always talk off camera to his managers. At one point, he, he like had his managers walk out 
and and like introduce them. Well, his uncle Ray used to travel with him. It, yeah, he 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 was one of the the guys in the entourage. But he had these these these. I remember the one guy. His manager was named Richie, some guy from Brooklyn. And then if, I forget who was his like you know other guy that other manager that was with him. You know, came out as well. Well, one of my favorite scenes from the Arsenio Hall show is when he was promoting Harlem Nights, mm-hmm. and they played a clip from it. And then as they're going to commercial, they bring out Eddie's uncle. Because Eddie tells a story that when when uh, Uncle Ray and his dad and, and the family, when they were young, they went to this gypsy, this uh, fortune teller. And the fortune teller said that uh, in later years, people in your family are going to become famous. So they thought it was the boys. So the parents had them go out and take dancing lessons and singing lessons. Mm-hmm. And they were going to you know be performers. So he actually brought out Uncle Ray. And Uncle Ray's wearing jeans and a very tight T-shirt. And he's wearing, you know, a hat. And so he dances out. He's tap dancing as they go to commercial break. And to see the two of Eddie and Arsenio just roaring and falling down on the chair. It's on YouTube if people want to check it out. It's very, very funny. Look at Eddie's uncle or look up Eddie's uncle. You'll find it there, and it's it's very hilarious. I did see that clip. It, it, it's good. Yeah, I, I would recommend that as well. But yeah, you know, t- to your question, I, I think that it's very common for, I don't care what it is, whether it's music, whether it's the movies, uh, whether it's sports, uh, you know, or anything in life, you know, successful in business. It doesn't really matter if, if you are deemed to, to be too successful there's always a bunch of people just waiting for for you to fail. And in this life, you're only going to get better once you fail. And you have to be able to try things. And, you know, when when alt- eventually and ultimately he was going to hit a little snag in his career because it's impossible not to. There were people like a David Spade who were just waiting to say well, it's the falling star. Well, we had talked about in previous episodes with the Bee Gees mm-hmm. and Disco. Um, you know, I was reading about all the backlash on Phil Collins because in the mid eighties, Phil Collins was everywhere. Sure. And then all of a sudden people just started ripping into the guy. Uh, same thing with the guy like Eddie Murphy, when you get to be so big, uh, Michael Jackson even had that type of criticism. Madonna's had that type of criticism. When you get to be so big, you're right. You got people laying in the weeds. Just, they want to just take people down because they want to. Yeah. It's a shame, but that's, that is a fact of life. Yeah. So, all right. Um, any final thoughts on on Eddie Murphy? I I covered pretty much everything that I that I think people might might remember or enjoy. Uh, any other thoughts that you wanna that you wanna toss out there? Uh, you know, just the main thing was you know when you brought up the topic, it, you know, like when we talked about Tom Hanks and you know everything that he was in, and it, it was a natural to go with somebody like you know Tom Tom Hanks, who just has had this incredible career. When you threw out Eddie Murphy, and I thought, yeah, you're not going to get someone that is going to have been a bigger star, whether it was the 70s, 80s, or 90s. You know, obviously, Eddie was too young for the 70s, but there was nobody who who was brighter at, at his peak than what Eddie Murphy was. And the guy's still making good movies to, uh, to this day. I mean, we talked about Shrek. Uh, one of my favorite movies of a couple of years ago, was it last year? Uh, Dolomite is my yes, name. I love him. Yeah, yeah. And again, he's so good. Yeah. He's, I mean, the guy, the guy can act. And I'll, and I'll say this for him, uh, to his to his absolute credit, um, especially when you listen to the Charlie Murphy True Hollywood stories, 
you you, you understand that this wasn't just BS when they said that he lived, uh, you know, a, a lifestyle totally free from substance abuse. You know, he wanted nothing to do with drugs or alcohol. And as a result, today, he still looks young. He looks great. He, you know, he, you can tell he has worked out. His, his health was important. And, you know, Charlie would always say, hey, Eddie had nothing to do with any of that. So he took, he put, he, you know, he was more than willing to pick it up for him. And, yeah. but, you know, Eddie was, he, you know, he might have had his issues with women, but as far as, you know, the substance abuse and, and things like that, it, he never went down that road. And now today he, he is, you know, what, he's like 65 years old or something like He'll be 62, 62. in April. I mean, it's 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 just amazing. You know, I saw him, you know, recently, and he still looks incredible yeah. for his age. Yeah, he looks great. Um, and has, uh, for that generation of actors, he's he's on the younger side. Yeah. You know, most, most of the people that we followed in movies at that point were, like I said, when he got into stand-up comedy, the Jerry Seinfelds and Jay Leno's were anywhere from eight to 10 years older than him when, when they were all kind of doing things at the same time. So he was kind of the, the, the wunderkin or the mm-hmm. wunderkin of, of that group. The fact that he's so much younger than them, even, you know, to this day, but yeah, nope, nope. Good choice. I, I think he definitely personifies what was big, especially in the eighties. Uh, you know, you know, huge superstar in Eddie Murphy. Well, that's going to put a wrap on our tribute to Eddie Murphy. Uh, so, Going into episode number 16, Sean, it's going to be Sean's turn, and what have you decided to choose? All right, so here is a card that I've been keeping in my back pocket for for a little while, and for anybody that knows me, this is not going to come as a surprise. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that we now have the ability to play some music, because it's going to be, uh, you know, make this even better than if we had brought this out earlier when we couldn't play the music. So, once again, another music episode. This will be another top 10. And, and I, I do want you to, to rank and, and have a top 10. We can do honorable sure. mentions as well. But this is going to be, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to put this out here in parentheses first. And, and the first part of, of what the title is going to be is going to be in parentheses, don't call them, and in parentheses, hair bands. So, I want your top 10 hair band bands. Okay. You know, don't call them hair bands because, you know, that's not a phrase that... that top 10. Uh, top 10. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I want them ranked. So this was, this was a, a genre of music that, as I say, people that know me will know I was heavily <laughs> into this, this period where the, uh, the Sunset Strip ruled the music world. Are we going to talk about Striper? If, you, if that is part of it, <laughs> you know, and, and so... When I say the the hair bands, I don't think you need to limit them to necessarily Sirius XM's Hair Nation. You know, we, you can you can bring in bands that you know you might have have liked that might be kind of that genre because it's a little more cut and dry today. You know, today that you know it's like oh these were the these were the quote unquote hair bands, sure. right? But yeah. when we were living in at the time, you might have had a band that might have come out of the seventies. Well, let's say, you know, just off the top of my head, maybe you're going to say, I really like Deep Purple. All right. Well, Deep Purple. Yep. All right. So it was a hard rock band. Maybe it's more than hard rock, but it certainly was relevant. And so, and as I thought about this, Headbangers Ball was, was big, you know, and it kind of straddled some of the different genres, but, you know, if possible, maybe keep it a little more towards the, the, the Sunset Strip bands, but yeah, yes, certainly a striper could be part of that. Well, it's a good point because the Sunset Strip bands 
dominated that top 10 at six o'clock yeah where you, you could call in and vote absolutely when mtv started that in around 1985 sure that was remember they had to retire motley crew they did because it was number one every every yeah. single day but anyway we'll talk about that next week so uh keep i'm looking forward to that we want to give a quick shout out because remember we didn't i think i failed to do so at the beginning of the episode let's give a shout out to one of our most uh supportive towns on the Gen X playback, which is the great city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay. So shout out to Philly. Thank you guys for listening. And we really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed this episode on Eddie Murphy. We're the brothers. High. I'm Scott and I'm Sean. And we'll talk to you next time when we talk about don't call them hair bands. See you soon. See you.